1: Everywhere in America, in the enclave of Ben Lohman in California, Santa Cruz County, a young deputy responding to a report of a van carrying pipe bombs was shot to death by the suspect, who turned out to be an active duty Air Force sergeant, an MP, and that Air Force sergeant is suspected also of gunning down a federal security guard in Oakland on the first night of Black Lives Matter protests. A couple of nights later, about 150 miles south in Paso Robles, in another wine enclave of California, a deputy was shot in the face at his own office. The suspect died the next day in a subsequent shootout with police. There were a couple more police injured in that shootout. In Chicago on May, thir- on May 31st, 13 people were killed and more than 80 wounded in shootings on the city's south side while police were preoccupied with controlling Black Lives Matter protests elsewhere in the city. More than 300 police officers in New York City were injured when Black Lives Matters protesters through projectiles ranging from water bottles to bricks to Molotov cocktails at them. One press account showed an SUV deliberately plowing into an officer who was standing in the middle of an intersection directing traffic, and that officer barely survived. On the other hand, I've lost count of the very disturbing, I can't breathe, body cam video footage, acts of police that I would never have imagined. But boy, have I seen on various news programs over the past week alone. I mean, I literally have lost count. And all of these videos taken over the last couple of years have, one, have a few things in common the suspects were all young and they were all black men. The arrests were not for violent crimes or against known violent felons. And the arrests, given that they were not for violent crime and not against known felons, the arrests were universally unnecessarily and unacceptably violent. And in too many cases, I can't breathe, led to a dead suspect in custody. Most of us have been disgusted by the violence we've witnessed being perpetrated against protesters in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, in Louisville, Kentucky, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Los Angeles, California, in Buffalo, New York in Atlanta, Georgia. And the list goes on and on. And now, and now we have a group of protesters who have taken over the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, Washington, including the police precinct in that neighborhood. And there The protesters have set up a barricaded six-block hippie community that looks a whole lot like the pictures we all know of San Francisco's Hate ashbury in the 1960s. Jonah Goldberg's Gmail letter of June 12th paints a somewhat different picture than such a bucolic scene behind the protesters barricades. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I think we all agree that this six-block hippie community, this 21st century summer or late spring of love on the rainy, cold, still wintry streets of Seattle, would be comical if it were not for the fact that at some point the city of Seattle will need to take control back from the AK-47 toting leader of the Seattle squatters. Yes, they got their own form of police, their own leadership team carrying slung over their shoulders. You've seen it on TV, that thing that slung over their shoulder is an AK-47. And you know why? Because Washington is an open carry state. I question how you're ever going to solve the problem of police overreaction, of police brutality of the abuse of authority while police are asked to patrol streets that are awash with guns all too often aimed at the police. This is the Reimagine America radio hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I fix problems. I don't make them, but I think It's not a secret that more guns in this country than there are citizens is a problem for the police. And I don't know how to solve the policing problem without solving the gun problem. But all this observing of police conduct that we've had over the past week has led me to three conclusions. First, most police officers join the the force to protect and serve not to punish and abuse. And we've seen lots of examples of that sort of behavior over the past two weeks. Take a knee, cops taking off their protective gear and marching with the protesters. And you know when they do that, when they really are peace officers, they put themselves at terrible risk. Because, did I say? We got a pesky problem of streets awash with guns, all too often aimed at cops. And when they join those marches, they have no idea. So let's give them some credit. But there are a few people who become police officers who simply should not be police officers. There's a need, a fundamental need based on the existing data and all of the illustrations coming to light that we need to set higher standards For law enforcement. Higher standards in recruitment, training, performance review, corrective action at the lowest and earliest level when it's necessary, and all of that means renegotiation of police contracts to facilitate the enforcement of corrective action against bad cops. We can no longer allow municipal and state officials to trade ignoring bad cops for campaign contributions. And that's about what it comes down to. Second, the rush to militarize our municipal police forces 20 years ago was, in hindsight, an overreaction. And like most hastily conceived, broadly disseminated overreactions, there are consequences. Yes, in the aftermath of 2001, it made sense to somewhat arm the homeland against what we feared would be a flood of terrorist attacks. We had to give the first responders enough heavier munition to be able to hold the target of the terrorists until help could arrive in the form of the National Guard. But when national law enforcement and our intelligence communities had control of that threat, the police procurement practices that looked at, you know, Humvees and other sorts of military hardware weren't modified. Those practices between the uh, military surplus and local law enforcement didn't revert to peacekeeping. Peacekeeping. Too many police departments now have too much heavy armament that they don't need to do their principal job. And their principal job is not policing, it is keeping the peace. And we need to remember that. their principal job is to keep the peace. Third, the police are too often the thin blue line responding to too many situations for which they are not trained and they are ill-equipped to handle. School resource officer comes to mind. Bad outcomes occur when the skills to do a job and the duty of that job are mismatched. So what do all three of these observations have, have in common? Fixing them will cost money. And along come protesters shouting, defund the police and politicians of every stripe cannot wait. They can't wait a moment to run to the microphones to first perform their necessary mia copas and beat their chest proclaiming their determination to take money from the police for social programs, quote-unquote social programs. Oh, now that they, these politicians have seen the light. But I ask you, have those very same politicians talked to their police unions yet? Because those unions have contracts, and those unions are going to have something to say about all of this. Too many politicians... Are overreacting and over promising something they don't have any idea yet how they can deliver, especially in the midst of an economic recession, when every city budget, every state budget is going to contract significantly. But it's even worse than that because when the government overreacts and/or reacts with false urgency, The results will cost too much money and they will deliver too few and too little in results. So let's take a step back. Let's come to an understanding with all of those people in the streets. Yes, yes, our police must be held to a higher standard. We are arming them with lethal weapons. We have a right to expect a lot. Because in the final uh, analysis, we give them in certain circumstances, the lawful right to use those weapons as a last resort and at their discretion. But the evidence suggests that in just too many instances, they don't have the level of training required to make the correct split second decision. In that moment, in that fraction of a second, when they've got to determine how to de-escalate or when to in fact use force, even lethal force, it turns out their training doesn't seem to be sufficient to overcome their natural human fight or flight instinct. It's their behavior is partly driven by their fear for their own safety and that fear overcomes their training and too often results in tragedy. And yes, let's acknowledge the facts. Let's look at this realistically. Some of that fear is born from bias. Let's think about training for just a second. When a person is trained as a doctor or an infantry sniper or a pilot or an astronaut years and years of training drilling repetition training drilling repetition makes performance in a high stress situation automatic they just act they don't they don't have to stop and think and analyze the situation because they've been trained it's been drilled into them They've repeated it. Police don't receive that level of training, especially after they've been deployed to the streets and completed field training. So maybe that's part of the corrective action program for policing in general. And that's that maybe like the National Guard, police should be compelled to endure a two-week refresher academy every year. But you know what? Improving that training, giving that kind of rigorous training repeatedly costs money. It's expensive. It will save lives, but it's expensive. It costs money. There are now proposals in both houses of Congress to set national standards for policing. In an earlier podcast, I argued that rather than the federal bureaucracy, the National Association of Police Chiefs and the organization that supports them should take the first crack at developing national standards in conjunction with the communities they police. Policing is a local jurisdictional issue. There's no federal mandate for policing under Article 10 of the Constitution. Different communities Additionally, we're a, we're a very variegated, crazy, different you know, set of circumstances kind of country. So different communities need different skills as well as a caring heart and a level head in their police officers. Here in Silicon Valley, we need bilingual officers because nearly, uh, nearly 40% of our households speak English as a first language. That's quite different than, let's say, the hollows of West Virginia. So different communities need different skills in addition to a rational set of national standards of both recruitment and behavior. Police are paid for by local taxpayers, not by the federal government. So creating a federal bureaucracy to police the police beyond traditional FBI investigations of police abuse, will cost a lot of money, and that money will not get to the communities that need it. It will be absorbed in the bureaucracy that is created to police the police. Ninety percent of the federal funds that w- would be allocated for Im- proved policing under that sort of a system would be absorbed by the federal and state bureaucracies that are created to monitor or whatever standards are set. And that is like circular logic. It makes no sense to do that, to set up another bureaucracy when in fact we need the money on the streets. And at the moment when urgency is the order of the day, let me remind you that between passing a law and federal standards actually being implemented in, um, in regulation would take years and years, and right now we don't have years and years. So It also causes me to ask a, another question. Before you throw more money at the issue of policing the police, let's ask a simpler question. Why isn't the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department doing its job, and that is its job, to police, the pol- to police policing? To make sure that the citizen rights are not abridged by the police. So I'm going to ask about holding hearings to figure out if instead of more federal programs, Why don't we spend more time and more oversight trying to make the ones we have work? Would take far less time, cost far less money. But you know, in the past few days, you know, action begets energy. There have been some really smart ideas in that ether. Responses to the common police officer complaint that, police are asked to do too much to discipline kids in a school setting to calm domestic violence to deal with uh, sometimes saving the life of overdose drug addicts to address truancy and other juvenile issues and the list goes on and on and on some say the we shouldn't have the police respond to those that we should defund policing and and create this um, force of emergency social workers. You know, I think it's a great idea. It's a tremendous idea to send somebody who's really an expert in helping to diffuse domestic violence or get people into drug addiction diversion programs or understand why kids get into trouble um <clears throat> although it's normally off duty police officers who work at the um gang intervention solutions so i think more social services um more psychological training you know an emergency service social worker would be a great idea but i but you just ask a social worker if if she or he Wants to be dispatched to deal with a domestic violence or child abuse call to 911 without the protection of an accompanying armed police officer. I think this special social worker, emergency service worker thing, well, it's a right solution. But at least in the short run, it's going to cost a lot of money. New York's Governor Como has issued an executive order that requires the state attorney general's office to conduct all investigations of police conduct that involve the potential officer possibly having committed a felony. Uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, I'm sorry, Minneapolis is a city. Minnesota has also uh, issued a similar executive order And it makes a lot of sense because what you're doing is taking the investigation out of the hands of law enforcement's local partners, the DA. DAs rely in testimony to convict people on police officers. So they're kind of reluctant to come down heavily on a police officer when there are questions of conduct. The state attorney general taking that over, I think that's a great idea. But you know what? It's going to cost money. And then, and then, and then we have the moments that I like to call false urgency. Oh, got to do something right now, whatever. That's when a scared politician, for example, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, uh, who in his dreams will be a 2024 Democratic presidential candidate, Uh, goes to the microphone and throws out a number uh, that he's going to take out of the local police budget. $150 million just material miraculously appeared after he said he needed 7% more in this budget, not less. He didn't offer a plan about how he was going to deploy that money to improve the life of the police. He didn't offer a plan he didn't offer a plan about how he's going to deploy that money to improve the life of the police. Because economics and crime have a relationship. So maybe, maybe the mayor, instead of just throwing out $150 million, ought to maybe start with something small but specific. Housing, as an example. Housing is an absolutely critical issue in Los Angeles. Heck, it's a critical issue all over the state. And $150 million is just a Dutch boy finger in the dike toward solving the overall problem. But $150 million as a first step toward moving from plan to task could renovate a lot of housing in the LA projects. You know what that would do? That would make a measurable difference in the community in a short period of time. In weeks, months, not years. And you know what that would do? That would demonstrate the mayor and the city's good faith to work through problems, including policing, with their communities of color. Because systematic racism isn't just one thing. It's a myriad and complex set of problems, and we can't blame them all on the police. Because if we do, in the words of Lonnie Bunch, the curator of the Smithsonian African History Museum, who said last week, last Sunday on Meet the Press, this is a moment of optimism, but a moment to remember that we've been here before. So if we blame all the problems, of racism, systemic racism on policing. If we think fixing policing is all that it is, then Mr. Bunch's comment will become a prophecy. So 2020 must be the year that we begin to reform policing, reform, reform policing, not defund the police.